welcome to Tea and Tattle, a podcast that celebrates female creativity and storytelling. I'm your host, Miranda Mills, and today I'm joined by the author, Laura Purcell, to discuss Laura's latest book, Bone China. Laura is the queen of gothic fiction writing, and I raced through her two previous books, The Silent Companions and The Corset. Bone China is just as compelling a read. Set in Georgian Britain, it follows the story of Esther Stevens, who flees to Cornwall from London after an incident with her previous employer. Changing her name to Hester Y, she takes a position as a lady's maid at a grand, isolated house situated on the edge of the Cornish cliffs. There she cares for the elderly Miss Louise Pinecroft, who seems terrified by some unknown force and sits relentlessly gazing at her vast blue and white china collection. Using alcohol and laudanum to dull her uneasy conscience, Esther struggles to face her new life in Cornwall, especially when events take a very sinister turn. I had a wonderful time chatting to Laura about the inspiration behind Bone China and her love for gothic fiction. I think Bone China is the perfect book to enjoy curled up by a snug fire over the Christmas holidays. And if you haven't read any of Laura's books yet, then definitely add them to your Christmas list as I can't recommend them highly enough. I am such a fan of Laura's work and this episode is a brilliant listen for anyone else who enjoys great storytelling and historical fiction. Let's get started with the show. Hello Laura, thank you so much for being on Tea and Tattle today. Thank you for having me. I absolutely love your books, I mean they're all such page turners. Thank you, that's so nice. I think I've stayed up late reading every single one of them and Bone China was absolutely no exception. I just had to finish it Amazing. to find out what happened. <laughs> um, but you really are the master of gothic suspense. And what first really sparked your interest in that sort of genre of writing? It's funny, really, uh, because I never thought I would write something gothic. I, Looking back, I always did enjoy gothic stories. Uh, as a teenager, I was obsessed with the Brontes and um, particularly Phantom of the Opera as well, as gothic tales go. But when I first started writing, I wrote mainly sort of romance and things for myself. Um, it was only as I started doing more research in, into the past uh, that I came across some really just nasty things that happened in the past and and some creepy objects as well. Um, So my Mm -hmm. first gothic novel was The Silent Companions, which I only wrote because I found out about these wooden sort of fire stands painted to look like people and they scared me so much I thought they they need to have their own creepy story and I'd never written anything creepy before but I thought I'll give it a try and it turned out I was quite good at that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh absolutely and yes I love how each of your novels kind of follow a particular craftsmanship I mean like you said the Dutch silent companions in the first one and there's sewing of course in the corset and um, pottery in bone china which I find absolutely fascinating. It's amazing isn't it like these things from the past when you you look at them and you think I wonder who made that and how they did it especially when they didn't have the same techniques as we do now. 
Yes, exactly. Um, was it pottery then that sort of first provided some of the inspiration for Bone China? Yeah, I had an idea that I wanted um, to write about someone with a huge China collection. Um, I spent some time studying a lady called Henrietta Howard, and she collected blue and white porcelain. And I just had this great image of, of this massive blue and white porcelain collection that someone just sat and stared at all day and they were trapped in the same room. Um, so I had that image in my head. But the inspiration for the story originally came when I found out about a doctor um, from Kentucky who took a, a group of patients suffering from consumption to Mammoth Cave in Kentucky uh, because he thought the air inside the cave was magic and that it would cure them. So that's echoed in my story. I've moved it to Cornwall. <laughs> I thought, where else can I have a cave that's, that's in England? Um, and, and Cornwall was one of my favourite places, so I moved it there. And I kind of blended the two ideas together, this this idea of something creepy and strange going on in the caves and, mm. and someone above the caves watching their china collection. Yes, um, I was horrified that that was based on a true story. All the worst um, things are. Say, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that, yes, that, that is actually very true. Um, but yes, I was really fascinated because in the course, I'd been really interested by the sort of pseudoscience that you explore mm. in that book. And in this, um, yes, you write a lot about the ideas that people had around consumption at that time in the sort of Georgian period and ways of treating it um, that really were very horrific. <laughs> they were. It's a, it's a really strange thing um, because consumption, as they would have called tuberculosis, really sort of captured the popular imagination because it was considered an incurable disease. Uh, I guess much in the way that we kind of look at cancer now, um, mm. though obviously we have had some instances of that being being cured. It, it just kind of really was seen as this spectre to the public imagination. And everybody had a theory on what caused it and, and how they could get rid of it. And some of them were just very interesting. <laughs> there was the idea that if you were too sort of self-indulgent and lazy, you could get consumption. Uh, there were also these ideas that you could kind of smoke it out using chalk and arsenic. And mm. it, just, it, was, it was quite confusing researching it, actually, because there were so many conflicting ideas and theories circling around. It was very difficult to decide what the prevalent opinion would have been. Mm. So my doctor has uh, has his own ideas about fresh sea air. Yes. <laughs> and takes takes it to extreme. He really does, bit. yes. <laughs> <laughs> but Cornwall was the perfect setting for the book. And in fact, the opening scene reminded me of another famous book set in Cornwall. It reminded me of Jamaica Inn Good. by Daphne <laughs> du Maurier, <laughs> which I'm sure you intended. I indeed. I wanted, I knew Mary's journey um, to Bobmin Moor in the coach was a great opening chapter that I really enjoyed. Jess, um, I, I think I leapt at the chance to move this this basic story idea to Cornwall, uh, not only because it's such a beautiful county, but because of my love of Daphne du Maurier. She's one of my absolute favourite authors. 
And I, I wanted uh, to, to kind of give a few nods to her when I wrote this book. Yes, well, I really enjoyed recognising those. And yeah, I love the the opening scene in Bow China too, that has Hester Y or Esther Stevens, as Hester <laughs> Y is actually her assumed name. Um, but yeah, she's travelling through the on the mail coach through Cornwall and it's a very dramatic, brilliant opening. But um, are you a big fan of Cornwall then? Had you been wanting to write a book set there? Yes, I I had some very fond memories of it from holidays when I was younger um, and I hadn't been for a long time and writing this novel gave me a great excuse to go down there again. Um, I, I couldn't spare a lot of time, unfortunately. It was a very strict schedule, but I spent some more time um, down in Charleston and Carlisle Bay and it's just it's just gorgeous. I, I love the beauty of the place, but also the idea that especially back in the time I was writing it would have been a very unforgiving landscape um you know not very practical to get around and exposed to the weather really especially Mm. in I think we spoke about that that mail coach journey at the beginning it's in freezing conditions in the snow and uh yeah, I can imagine Cornwall would be very difficult to navigate in the snow. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, and um, like Jamaica in Bone China is also set in um, sort of Georgian mm. Britain. Your two previous novels were both set during the Victorian era, although I know that prior to those novels, you wrote about the Georgian period as well. So this was a sort of return to that period for you. It was. Um, what what made you want to go back to that time period? I think the Georgian period is always going to be my first love and, and my favourite period of history. When I wrote The Silent Companions, I very much had in mind that I wanted to do a scary ghost story. And I felt that it had to be Victorian. It's kind of what's expected, the classic Victorian ghost story. And, and with the corset, again, the... I said it around the 1840s because that was the time that a lot of the terrible conditions for dressmakers were becoming apparent. Um, But with Bone China, I thought, well, I've got an excuse to move it to whenever I want. It doesn't doesn't really matter. So I thought I'll see if I can get away with going back to Georgian times. (laughs) Slightly less popular as a time period, but I love it. Oh, well, I love it too. So Yay. I, mean, <laughs> no, I really enjoyed that um, about the book. And I loved, I mean, it's set partly in London too, mm. um, as well as Cornwall. So I loved getting both those settings in the book. Um, Mavoran House, um, yes. which is such an atmospheric <laughs> setting um, to the Cornwall House. I read that that wasn't actually based on a real place, but that you found out afterwards that there was actually a house quite similar. Is that right? Yes. Mavoran House was very much built in my imagination. I had this great idea of a very windswept house, very stern on the edge of the cliff. Um, But then when I was doing some further research into the clay mining around Cornwall, um, I came across some pictures of the house at Rincey Head, um, which was built later than my book is set. But it looks very much like I imagined Morvern House. So I would really like to go there now and, uh, and see it and see how much of it 
is like my fictional house. <laughs> yes. Well, I think that that was such um, an amazing coincidence. Yeah. And um, I thought that was another brilliant nod to Daphne du Maurier, of course, because she always writes about houses. Well, houses are always so important in her books yes. too. And I thought this house in Bone China was really like another character in itself. But Good. you you mentioned how much Daphne du Maurier has inspired your work. And I wondered what other authors have particularly inspired your writing? Oh, there's so many. Um, I'm a big Jane Austen fan, which seems strange because I don't really write Jane Austen style things. But um, I love her sense of humour. And I would say she's my favourite author. Um <laughs> I got a lot of inspiration from Philippa Gregory. I've read most of her books, um, especially her early stuff. I really, really love. Uh, she's got such a compelling storytelling voice. Um, and I love Sarah Waters. Everything she writes is amazing. Um, the corset was a big nod to Affinity, um, the ending of which absolutely destroyed me. Yeah. <laughs> and still, I've still got the scars from that today. <laughs> Uh, and, and I love Shirley Jackson um, and, and Susan Hill. They're both such atmospheric, uh, spooky writers. Yeah. Um, who else do I love? Oh, Kate Morton. Um, oh, yes. I'm a big fan of her time slip novels. Yeah. Um, I think part of the dual timeline in Bone China was inspired by her books because she often has a character when they're they're older and, and then you flash back to another time period where you're learning about their early life. Mm. I feel she inspired that aspect of my character, Louise, quite mm. a lot. Yeah. Oh, I love Kate Morton too. And in fact, all of the authors you've mentioned, um, right. I, I adore <laughs> as well. Um, but yes, um, I find that is interesting that one of um, your characters, that, well, there is a bit of a sort of time slip feel um, to yeah. your book because part of it is set a bit earlier um, then Hester Wise's story. And throughout your books, you you generally do employ a dual narrative style where there are sort of two female characters mm. um, with an important story to tell. Why is that a, a favourite device of yours? I think um, I'm just fascinated by how people appear through other people's eyes. Mm. Um, and looking at different sides of a situation. Uh, so I, I think I really like to play upon the idea of what is the truth to some person to a, another person will be completely different, but they're looking at the same situation. I'm, I'm not sure if that's mainly because of my love of history. Um, mm. We mentioned when I started out researching the uh, Georgian royal family, I was very aware that two members of the family would view important historic events in just completely different ways and I think I, I like to try and bring a kind of balance to my books in that way and, and I do love showing a character through another character's eyes. Mm, yes I think that that is really fascinating as well um, and I love reading your books for that reason but also I think you write the most brilliant unreliable narrators <laughs> I do love an unreliable narrator <laughs> oh me too uh, you know I love books with an unreliable narrator and yours are just so good and I I think that Hester Y as she goes by um in a lot of the book is your best yet I mean oh thank you <laughs> <laughs> even even her her last name why that she invents for herself is a question yeah and I just think that 
she is such a fascinating character because um as a re- as the as a reader i formed a definite sort of opinion of her that changed more and more as the story went along and i'm still not quite sure to be honest what i really believe about her um there are some hints as to her past but the readers very much left to make up their own mind in this book which i think is brilliant but i wanted to ask you how much do you know about the characters that you're writing? I mean, is, is there any part of Hester or Esther that's uh, a mystery to you still? Or, or do you kind of know all the details and you just deliberately leave things out? I think it's interesting because characters often change in different drafts as I'm writing them, um, you know, based on as you write the book, the first draft just tends to be you telling yourself the story. Mm. And then the other drafts you kind of, start to get to know the characters um and then obviously I get feedback from my editor so um Esther started as possibly a lot more horrible than she comes across now um still tormented but you know possibly a much darker character in her intentions Mm. whereas I think she ended up actually just being a very conflicted lonely person Mm -hmm. but again I I do enjoy this aspect of um the sort of grey areas, I think, of like I was saying earlier about seeing a character through someone else's eyes. I I don't really like fiction where a character is a hundred percent good and another character is a hundred percent bad. Mm-hmm. Um because I don't believe real life is like that. Mm-hmm. And I very much think that good people are capable of terrible actions um and vice versa. So I think I think Puesta's kind of at heart a good person really Mm. but she's uh, she's made some bad choices yes and there's almost a bit of a Mrs Danvers I mean speaking of Daphne du Maurier and Rebecca there's almost this obsessive side to her personality um, which I enjoyed as well yes again it, it I never quite knew what to think no I I really liked the idea because um in, in both the places she works, Esther is, is a servant. And I very much liked to explore the idea of, of having servants. Because when you think about it, you know, you're inviting strangers into your house, into very intimate roles in your life, especially as a, a lady's maid. They're doing your hair, they're helping you bathe, they're dressing you. I just thought that was really interesting to explore, you know, how you could have this very close relationship with someone yet be expected also to hold them at arm's length as kind of an employee uh, so so the kind of obsession side of Esther came came from that I thought well, how how would she feel being being caught in this weird relationship yes and her own opportunities are so limited and I, yeah. I think you know to see how other people can live and yet have so few choices herself that you know must change your personality too I think so and I think you know there's kind of uh, the chance that she would either resent her employers or kind of set them up as a sort of idol mm-hmm. and she does both yes. <laughs> she kind of fights between this urge to to look up to her her mistress as someone who's got everything that she wanted and is is this perfect person but then she also towards the end of their relationship starts to get quite resentful and, and hurt 
Yes, but I love that she is also quite a gutsy heroine. I found, you know, she um, she does have a lot of courage. Somewhat um, rash. <laughs> yes, maybe maybe a little rash, but um, but she still does stand up to people, and um, she can also stand up for herself. And I really enjoyed that. Um, there's another theme that runs through Bone China too, and that's a little bit of the supernatural mixed with the superstitions of the time. Did you base those superstitions and the sort of belief in fairies on on fact? Are there stories about that from Cornwall at the time? Yes. Um, So I didn't think I could write about Cornwall without bringing uh, to mind, you know, the fairy folklore because it's just so rich in those parts. And um, I play with the supernatural in all my novels uh, and, you know, I've sort of done ghosts and I've kind of done a a secret power. So I thought this one has to be about fairies. Um, The kind of legend I used mainly for the ideas behind Bone China is actually from Devon, um, but it was about Pixie Day, which is in um, Ottery St. Mary. It was the idea that uh, pixies were banished from the town um, when a, a church was built. And they went to live in the caves beneath the town. Um, but the, on Pixie Day every year, they they come out and they, they take the bell ringers from the church and they take them to their caves, uh, you know, never to be seen again. So I was I loved that legend because it, it linked in with the cave idea. Yes. Um, and and this, this idea of this whole subterranean world going on where, where you could be snatched away. Yes. So that was the main the main folklore I used. But I came across so many. I think in my first draft, uh, my editor was just saying, Laura, there's too much folklore. <laughs> <laughs> Tone it down a bit. There's folklore all over the place. Here. <laughs> so we had to simplify it a bit. Oh, it must have been fascinating uh, researching that, though, and all the different stories. It must have been hard to pick and choose. I think that's it. So many ideas spring to mind when you you go through them. Um, I think I mentioned uh, a very popular fairy uh, folklore idea about changeling children, that um, a a child can be swapped with a fairy child. That that features quite heavily in the book as well. Yes. Well, one of the characters, Creda, who is a servant, but she's um, really obsessed with the idea of the fairy folk and sort of really believes in this. Although you do also suggest in the book that her, her belief stemmed from actually a horrific but very real event that happened in her life. And again, I, I feel, you know, in some of your other books, the supernatural element was just, you know, very much there. Like the, the Silent Companions was meant to be enjoyed as a ghost story. Whereas with this one, I felt there's just that bit more room for doubt, which I enjoyed as a as a reader as well, that you can really kind of make up your mind as to is there something really supernatural going on or is everyone going a little bit mad or, you know, what's, what's <laughs> yes, really happening I think, here? <laughs> I feel the explanations in Bone China are possibly a lot more human than in my other other novels, uh, but possibly also a lot more tragic. Yes. Um, but no, I thought that was that was really interesting and that added a really sort of brilliant um, element of suspense too is you're not you're not quite sure um, as to <laughs> <laughs> what is really going on all the time which uh, which I really enjoyed great but something else I've noticed in in all of your books is you really write so powerfully about 
the harsh realities that women faced in all the time periods that you've written about. And I think in all of your books so far, you you have descriptions of sort of pregnancies and childbirth that are often quite harrowing. Yes. And, and I was wondering, um, do you feel that sort of this dark reality to lives of women at that time is partly why historical fiction lends itself so well to gothic writing? Oh, absolutely. I mean, a lot of these uh, awful childbirth scenes I have came from my my study of the Georgian royal family. I was just blown away by the sheer amount of miscarriages and stillbirths. Um, Even the queens suffered, you know, they had the best medical care available at the time. And and I think particularly Queen Caroline, um, George II's wife, you know, she, she had about, I'm trying to think how many now, it was going on for like three or four miscarriages, uh, stillbirth, um, and she had one of her ch- children die when he was still an infant. And, you know, this was just everyday life. Yeah. Uh, but obviously people were still still people with emotions and they were just devastated by this Um, so I really felt that did open my eyes Uh, I didn't feel I was going too much darker in writing in writing my supernatural fiction from from the things I really came across and uh, as I mentioned uh, even now in the corset there is a horrific crime which was inspired by a real life crime Mm. In fact, my editor wanted me to tone down the real life crime because it was too horrible. Oh, yeah. uh, and and again, the uh, you know the experiments in the caves in Bone China, that that had a real life inspiration. So yeah, it's not just all my twisted imagination. <laughs> sadly, <laughs> it's uh, some real life uncomfortable things going on. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I feel that you you write about them so well, and of course, you know, pregnancy, especially in those days, was was such a dangerous thing for women. So I find it really interesting that you've brought that out in each of your books. Um, but Laura. May I ask a little bit about your writing process as well? <laughs> Do you? It sounds like you start with so many different strands of stories. Yeah. Do you fill up notebooks first, or how do you set? I about don't. It? This is the thing. I I really don't think I have a process as such. Uh, it, it just seems to be so different for every book. Um, and I'll often have, like you said, notebooks and word documents just full of little ideas. Yeah. Or I'll come across something in research and think, oh, that would be a good angle to a story. And then it all it all starts to knit together. Um, I do try and plot out what I think is going to happen in a book before I start writing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tend to have the plot and the ending first. But things change along the way as I write uh, and, and characters develop more fully. I, I often have the plot and I try and think, well, what kind of character would act this way? Mm-hmm. What kind of character would they have to be to, to start down this path? And things things start to come from there. But yeah, it's a very uh, a jumbled <laughs> jumbled experience. That I have. But I, I it's yeah, it's something I really find difficult to explain. But I I kind of know. I feel that like I know what I'm doing, but I can't articulate it. <laughs> well, uh, I don't blame you. I know that's so much a part of the creative process is you you sort of have it figured out for yourself. But it can be yes. very hard to explain. But I do think that's interesting that you do start a lot with plot because I think your books 
are so tightly plotted. I really oh, do admire that about them. I mean, like I said, they apps, you know, the action just continues through them all the time and just makes you keep turning the pages, needing to know more. Oh, that's the plan. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you do it you do it brilliantly. But oh, thank you. At, at the end of my interviews, I always ask my guests if they would mind sharing a cultural recommendation. So I would love to hear about something that you've been enjoying lately, whether it's a book or a TV show, um, a podcast, exhibition, anything really. So many things. I'm I'm going to be boring and do a book. You're quite predictable. (laughs) But um, I'm reading Dracul at the moment um, by Dacre Stoker and J.D. Barker. Uh, so it's a book, it's a vampire book, and it's based on notes uh, that Bram Stoker left behind. And it's kind of written as a prequel to Dracula. Wow. And it's just so wonderfully creepy and adventurous. Uh, and it's really got the feel of, of Dracula, the novel. And I'm just loving it at the moment. It's such an indulgent treat for me. Oh. So. I would fully recommend that. Oh, wonderful. Well, that sounds like a perfect winter spooky read as well. So. <laughs> yes, yes, possibly more Halloween than Christmas, but still. <laughs> no, that's brilliant. I'll put a link to it in the show notes um, for this episode so listeners can check that out too. Oh, fantastic. But so what's next for you? Are you able to share about any uh, book events coming up or any future projects at the moment? Um, I've got a novel coming out next year. Um, I've just handed in the second draft of that. Ooh. I think it's going to be September uh, and it's called The Shape of Darkness. Oh, how wonderful. It's, <laughs> it's set in Bath um, and it's about a Victorian silhouette artist um, whose clients start to die and she's confused as to why this is happening and it's impacting on her business. So she contacts a child spirit medium and together they try and contact her dead clients to find out what's happened. Oh, wow. That sounds amazing. I can't wait for that. <laughs> it's good fun. I, I hope you like it. Oh, I'm sure I shall. And I'm really excited it's set in Bath. I think not enough novels are set in Bath, actually. So that's it's one of my favourite places. <laughs> and do you have any um, book events or talks coming up at all? Uh, not really at the moment. I th- I'm going to be at I think I'm going to be in Aberdeen in February um, for Granite Noir, their uh, festival up there. Um, but I imagine there'll be a lot more stuff around spring when Bone China comes out in paperback. So oh, brilliant. no plans for the moment, but uh, you can look at my website, laurapursell.com, um, and I try and, and update my my events fantastic well I'll put a link to your website in the show notes um where else can listeners find you online to keep up with your news and your latest books I've got a Facebook page um that I try and put my latest news on um and I think the social media I'm more regularly on is Twitter I'm uh my hash not hashtag sorry (laughs) my tag no, my handle, that's it, is, is Spooky Purcell. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I'll put links to the to all of those in the show notes too, so listeners can check them out. But Laura, it's been such a treat chatting to you this afternoon. Thank you so oh. much again for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Miranda. That's it for this episode of Tea and Tattle. Thanks so much again to Laura for her brilliant interview. For all the relevant links, check out the show notes for this episode at teaandtattlepodcast.com forward slash home forward slash 121. 
If you've enjoyed my chat with Laura, then I'd love it if you shared this episode with a friend. Or please consider leaving a review of Tea and Tattle on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, as great reviews help other people to find the show. If you'd like to get in touch, then come and find Tea and Tattle on Instagram at Tea and Tattle Podcast where I share the latest podcast news, sneak peeks of upcoming guests, and things I think Tea and Tattle listeners will love. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, keep well, be joyful, and stay in touch.